The Interchange is brought to you by Fluence, a global leader in battery storage, technology, and services. From commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008 to the multi-gigawatt fleet being deployed for customers globally today, the Fluence team is ensuring that storage is the cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, how COVID is shaping transportation in cities. Will we emerge from this pandemic with smarter planning and new ways to get around, or will it dismantle already weakened public transportation systems? In Berkeley, California, is my co-host, Shale Khan. He's managing director at Energy Impact Partners, a VC firm focused on the energy transition. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. I was out last week, and you got so excited, you started the show with a five-minute monologue about the history of residential solar. Uh-huh. Right after you had texted me not to do that. I literally <laughs> could not help myself. There's The history of residential solar is just too interesting not to you know, do an extraordinarily long monologue about. I was powerless. You knew I was powerless, so you just went ahead and... <laughs> Yeah, when the, what is it? When the cat's away, the mice will play. <laughs> I even got an email from Ingrid right before the show. Do you know what Shale's planning to do? And I said, yeah, just let him do it. <laughs> Thank you for that, Ingrid. All right, that brings me to my my preamble. So when economies across the world shut down all at once in March due to COVID, the impact on transportation systems was immediate. According to the International Energy Agency, activity on roads globally was down 50% compared to the 2019 average. Uh, Commercial flights were down 75% compared to 2019. Many cities saw more than a 90% drop in public transport ridership, and leading ride-sharing companies saw between an 80 to 90% drop in usage. Activity has since picked up, since bottoming out in March and April, but people are still moving around a lot less, and they're moving around differently. And as we've speculated numerous times over the months, the pandemic will likely shape behavior long term, which could shape how we design and operate transportation systems. And we have someone here who is applying data to this question. Her name is Tiffany Chu, and she is the CEO and co-founder of Remix. Remix works with hundreds of cities around the world to help them better plan for multi multimodal transportation in an environmentally sound and equitable way. Hey, Tiffany. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you serve as a commissioner for the San Francisco Department of the Environment. Um, you sit on the city's Congestion Pricing Policy Advisory Committee. You previously worked as a fellow for Code for America. You were um, the first UX hire at Zipcar. You are an alum of Y Combinator. You um, have a long history in, in the tech field. So what got you into transportation? So I would say I am a designer and planner at heart. I studied architecture and urban planning in school, and I think it was actually a direct response to growing up in the suburbs. I grew up in a small town called Bridgewater in suburban central New Jersey. I grew up on a cul-de-sac. There were no sidewalks, you know, that kind of environment, if you can imagine it. And I think moving to 
Cambridge and Boston for school actually completely changed my understanding of how cities work and how communities can work. And I think that really paved the way to me being interested in transportation and planning as a pathway to greater opportunity. So we're going to use your expertise to understand how these systems are changing and may change faster in a post-COVID world. Uh, Shale, before we get there, I think you have some disclosures to reveal here. Indeed, I do. Um, Just one disclosure, really, which is that we at Energy Impact Partners, the firm where I work, we are investors in Remix, Tiffany's company, and I'm a board observer at Remix. So I get the distinct pleasure of uh, working with Tiffany all the time. Uh, And I will say that you know, it's not by coincidence that we've got her on this show. I've actually been waiting for the right moment to pounce to invite Tiffany on because uh, Remix has an incredible window into how cities are dealing with transportation and transit and mobility changes in general, and then in particular now in this crazy dynamic time of COVID. So disclosure is um, I am certainly not an unbiased observer here. Nonetheless, as I'm sure you will hear over the next hour, Tiffany is uh a great expert on the subject. So why this moment? Why did you feel like this was the time to bring her on and have this conversation? Right. So um, as I think we will talk about, there were lots of trends that were already underway in the world of of transit mobility prior to COVID that were changing the face of cities and the way that people get around in cities. And those are interesting in and of themselves. But then you introduce COVID. And I think unsurprisingly, this is I think arguably, maybe not even arguably, the greatest disruption to all those systems that we've seen in, what, a century ever, possibly. Um, And it's, in many ways, extraordinarily bad, right? There was just news, in fact, yesterday that the MTA in New York is estimating it's going to have about a $16.2 billion budget shortfall through 2022. Transit agencies are struggling, you know, all over the world, Um and we haven't seen transit ridership come back. We'll talk about that. So it's really bad in some ways. But in other ways, it's creating this really dynamic landscape where I'm sure everybody who's listening has some version of this where they live, where there's like rapid redesign of streets or lanes being reappropriated for dining or all sorts of different things. So it, you know, changes are coming faster than they ever were before. And then there's this question of once we emerge from this, what's going to stay, what's going to revert back, and what's going to be a whole new world? So right now, to me, feels like perhaps the most interesting and in some ways scariest moment for urban transportation, um, certainly that I've been witness to. So Tiffany, why don't we start by level setting on sort of pre-COVID, you know, snap back six months. What were the big dynamics that were changing transit? Um, We'll start with transit, then we could talk about the rest of transportation. So transit has been really interesting in terms of trends and patterns over the last decade or so. So pre-COVID, it actually varied quite a bit by mode. So if you look at rail, passenger numbers grew over the last 30 years and only began to dip in 2015. But then if you look at bus ridership, that's actually been dwindling steadily since uh, 2012. And in 2018, it was actually, bus ridership was actually just 80% of where it was in 1965, which is when the federal government began even tracking transit data in the National Transit Database. So I would say over the last couple years, specifically transit ridership has been in decline for most of the U.S., barring some high, um, high population cities, for example, in some places, New York, increased ridership, Seattle did, um, DC did, but then every other major metropolitan area experienced a transit ridership decline. 
And do we have enough data to understand exactly what caused that decline? I think on the outside, the obvious answer is going to be Uber and Lyft and and ride sharing. Was that really the source? So there have been lots of different studies on whether or not that is causation or correlation. I would say there's many factors that explain the decrease in transit ridership, including low gas prices, cheap auto loans, the rise of Uber and Lyft, uh, the rise of telecommuting, and in some places, just kind of like slow, unreliable transit service. Um, And for example, there was a very clear study from the University of Kentucky in January of 2019, where they basically stated that um, every single year that a TNC, a transportation network company like Uber and Lyft, after a TNC enters a market, transit ridership can be expected to decrease by 1.3 to 1.7%. And that builds with each passing year, which could be an important driver of the recent ridership declines. So one of the cool things about Remix is that you are you developed the tool that 300 some plus cities are using to actually do their design around transit, um, designing bus routes, designing um, anything that they might need in order to determine how these things are going to run. So you get real visibility into like, how are the agencies, transit agencies reacting to this long-term trend in decreased ridership. So what's their strategy generally been to try to either combat decreased ridership or just adapt to it? Okay. So pre-COVID, there were a lot of agencies. We work with about 350 agencies in 22 countries around the world. And we see them often do everything from, you know, a small detour to a massive system redesign and everything in between. And a lot of what drives those different redesign options and alternatives is looking at the data and saying, where is ridership high? And if ridership is really high, you might want to increase service or the frequency of those routes. And where ridership is low, you may decide maybe that community is clearly not benefiting or using transit. It would be better served to use those dollars elsewhere on a higher frequency route. The other big trend, I think, or more recent trend, but like exploded onto the scene um, over the past couple of years pre-COVID was the rise of micromobility. How has that affected the movement of people within cities and, and certainly how cities themselves think about public transit? Yeah. So honestly, pre-COVID, I would say bike share was probably one of the biggest success stories in transportation over the past decade. And ever since Uber bought Jump and Lyft bought Motivate, and there was this extreme explosion of different modes and form factors of all shapes and sizes just landing on our streets, often powered by VC funding, uh, that kind of drove a huge amount of interest and energy and dollars and city resources into figuring out what modes in terms of the new shared electric, small, lightweight vehicles they wanted in their city to help with connecting their transportation network as a whole. Um, So pre-COVID, that was a super, super exciting uh, set of years that we saw. And I think a lot of it has tried to continue into the post-COVID era, but we can talk about that. All right. So these are the dynamics at play pre-COVID. Ridership slowly declining, sometimes declining faster, um, getting eaten up by a number of things, but in particular ride sharing and then this new explosion of of micromobility. So then COVID hits and everybody stops going everywhere for a little while. And then since then, people start going places again to a lesser extent, but um, transit ridership remains particularly depressed. I was just looking at the latest data that Apple releases from um, 
Apple Maps searches, basically. And in the United States, since the beginning of this year to today, driving requests are actually up 22%. They were way down in the midst of COVID, and now they've returned. They're up 22%, but transit is down 54%. So basically, at least in the current wave of resumption of economic activity, it seems pretty clear people are replacing trips that they would have taken on public transit with trips in individual passenger vehicles. So you're seeing that inside of all the transit agencies and, and departments of transportation that Remix works with. How are cities reacting? Yeah. So in a single word for transit right now, post-COVID or during COVID, it's been pretty catastrophic. So obviously, as you mentioned, ridership is plummeting in some places from 70 to 90 percent. Um, the CARES Act, which was passed with you know $25 billion in funding for transit, is only going to last the agencies uh, you know, about four to six months. Um, and agencies are honestly running out of time. And the longer the pandemic continues, the more the inadequacy of the CARES Act and its kind of general funding formulas at the federal level uh, will be clearer and clearer. So from what we're seeing behind the scenes at Remix, Starting in March, we saw hundreds and hundreds of projects and plans and maps pop up in Remix, our admin panel and our back end, with all of these plans just titled COVID emergency, contingency planning, you know, drastic cuts, you know, reduction plan A, B, C, and all of these other projects where, for example, Muni here in San Francisco, the SFMTA had to cut their 89 routes to 17. And we saw all of that happen in Remix in the back end over the course of about 48 hours over a weekend. So they, they drastically reduced service. Um, but I've also gotten the sense that they're starting to think a little bit more innovatively as they start to resume service again. And there's some changes that are being made in terms of how service is occurring, starting to think about things like dynamic last mile transit. You talk a little bit about like the kind of next wave of planning that, that cities are doing. Absolutely. So I would say the creativity is coming in in the fact that there's just way many more scenarios being planned in, you know, I would say typically an agency would plan maybe four scenarios for the four quarters of the year. Now, because of kind of a phased recovery approach, a lot of cities are taking, there's like five to 10 different scenarios for every single phase that a city might be entering. Um, I would say some of the more creative aspects for transit planning specifically are around uh, basically realizing that there's a lot more neighborhood to neighborhood type of uh, journeys being made from neighborhood center to other neighborhood centers instead of neighborhood centers to downtown, which if you look at most systems in the U.S., they're based on a radial service. So a lot of the bus service going downtown, where most people probably don't need to go anymore if they're telecommuting, uh, then you don't need that bus line as much as you did prior. That said, uh, a, a core part of transit service is being able to support all the essential workers that are still coming and going um, because they need to do their jobs, whether it's in healthcare or groceries or pharmacies, et cetera. And so being able to map out where essential workers are coming from and going to has been a very, very important kind of origin destination data analysis activity that a lot of agencies are doing to make sure their limited resources are being deployed in the most equitable ways. And how difficult is that for transit agencies to respond quickly in terms of logistics and cost? And does it depend on like the size of a city? 
Yes. So there are some agencies that we work with at Remix that have, you know, teams of tens of planners, you know, 20, 30, 40 planners within operations planning departments, et cetera. And then there are some agencies, you know, rural ones um, in much, you know, farther flung areas who have not a planner, but they have, you know, an operations assistant who moonlights as a planner. And then if a driver is out, needs to like go drive the bus, you know? So I would say the resources are pretty varied across the landscape of transit agencies across the country and across the world. Um, and so in order to save money and save save the, those resources, a lot of agencies are turning to other forms of service delivery like on-demand or kind of demand response paratransit-esque services to be able to be lifelines for those communities that need it, but for people who might have other options like cars, um, you know, transit agencies are kind of throwing their hands up and saying, we can't serve everyone right now. We've been focusing mostly on the transit side of this, but the other um, side of the Remix platform is focused around streets and street design, working with city departments of transportation. This has obviously been the other area where we've seen a lot of dynamism during COVID with you know, streets getting reappropriated for outdoor dining and, and stuff like that. What are you seeing on the back end of that side of the Remix platform? What are cities doing um, there? And, you know, I think the big question is going to be how temporary are all those things versus what's going to stick? Yeah, I would say this has definitely been one of the most exciting times we've seen at Remix in terms of the sheer innovation and excitement and speed of implementation um, that is going on. So for example, um, we've been seeing all of these different uh, new strategies around reallocating space in the street or in the right-of-way to be more people-focused as opposed to single-occupancy vehicle-focused. Um, for example, we've seen things in Remix, everything from full or partial reopening of streets, um, from the slow streets to the stay-healthy streets or however you want to call the streets, um, to expanding sidewalks in front of essential businesses, converting vehicle lanes into pop-up lanes, adopting temporary parklet programs, traffic signal changes, all these things that typically would probably take months and months and quarters and maybe years uh, to get approved are all of a sudden happening in Remix. We're seeing them planned in Remix uh, one week and then implemented the Monday after. Uh, which has been honestly crazy for a local government timeline. One of the concerns about the change in use of sidewalks and streets is like how they're being used. So I think a lot of us are very happy that we're creating, you know, new spaces for restaurants and pedestrians. But a lot of the solutions that people are looking at revolves around um, eating and commerce, right? And so it's it's great if we get more people out in the streets and less cars in the streets. Um, it's good for a variety of um, health and environmental reasons. But ultimately, a lot of these solutions are geared toward wealthier white people who are utilizing these services. And the New York Times this week just put out a great piece. Emily Badger, who's an amazing um, cities reporter, wrote a good piece on on how the, the a lot of the immediate solutions are kind of limited to people who are wealthier and tend to be white. I wonder what you think about expanding the way we're thinking about using these streets in different ways, and that's more equitable. So Stephen, you're touching upon a very sensitive topic in the urban planning community. Um, 
So I'm so glad you brought it up because this is a very nuanced perspective where I think you, as a planner, you need to understand, yes, like people need to be utilizing streets as a form of economic recovery. And at the same time, you also need to be uplifting those folks who maybe haven't had a full a fully paved road in their neighborhood for decades because that neighborhood has just been systematically marginalized uh, by the government. And so I think there is a deep sense of mistrust in some communities, mostly communities of color, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color have brought up the fact that the planning profession in itself is uh, not equitable in the way that planners are educated in the existing system. And I think one of the things that transportation brings up is a very, very strong sense of the haves and have nots, like who has access to a car and who doesn't. Because if you don't, your inability to have a car is basically the wall around your life. It's like the freedom of the places that you can possibly even get to in terms of where you need to access food, access resources, access a job. And so this whole conversation around slow streets where, you know, in wealthier neighborhoods, it's like, oh my goodness, my kids can finally learn how to ride a tricycle, you know, because I don't have enough parks in my area, which they probably do. And then in other places, it's like, wow, you have never invested in my community ever. And then all of a sudden you're putting up sawhorses for people to exercise. I can't exercise. I need to go be a nurse because I'm an essential worker. I don't have the luxury of thinking about exercise right now. And so what transportation does is it elevates this conversation to a kind of deafening level. It's been literally on all of my feeds um, for the past three months, I would say. Um, And I think what this is, is like a reckoning in folks who work in this space around making sure that you need to both invest in the pedestrianizing and the increase of sustainable modes, and at the same time, do it in a way that respects all the communities who have been there for years. And so this crisis has exposed a lot of flaws in the American system associated with inequities, uh, this being a really acute one. Is it forcing people to actually make decisions differently or thinking about the planning process differently? Are you seeing this actually cause some change in that planning process? I would say a very, very clear example of how this process has been changed and iterated on just in the last couple of months is in Oakland, where the city of Oakland was one of the first and to a lot of fanfare in the press. I think they opened something like 73 miles up uh, for their Slow Streets program. And they did it based on a previous bike plan that they had uh, completed um, last year, which was, uh, I think, fairly rooted in equity compared to other bike plans in other cities, but they rolled it out so fast and without enough community engagement that there was quite a bit of backlash. And the city learned very quickly, learned that a lot of the backlash was due to the communities not quite understanding what a slow street was. I mean, this is like a new typology for transportation, you know, Um, in America, at least. And so what they realized that they needed to do was uh, specifically go out to those communities, talk to them, understand like how to design this program in a way that makes sense for the traffic flows that they need to have. in order to get to and from their jobs and then do multiple iterations of it and expand over time based on community feedback as opposed to kind of one fell swoop. One of the other interesting dynamics over the past 
few years um, has been the evolving relationship between the emergent, like you said, often venture capital backed private mobility providers and the cities in which they operate, right? So Uber was, you know, the first to explode onto the scene and largely initially took like a, you know, shoot first, ask questions later sort of an approach and then ended up getting in a lot of fights with cities. Um, the micromobility providers have been the next wave and they've, I think, taken varied approaches themselves. There were lots of stories in the early days about some companies just dumping scooters on city streets and then cities fighting back. Some others tried to go be more friendly with cities. Like, What is your sense of the, the general evolution of the relationship between the cities and this new crop of like well-funded, grow at almost any costs, private mobility providers. The, the next wave might be like the autonomous vehicle companies, right? Yeah, I would say this space has been notorious for a lot of big egos. And I think a lot of big egos have ruined a lot of really cool opportunities that private-public uh, partnerships have traditionally made possible. Um, I would say in the past, pre-COVID, there were hundreds, not hundreds, there there were many, many, many different micromobility companies vying for each individual city's attention. And so what that meant was the city and potentially, I, you know, I, if I were in the same position and all of these venture-backed companies were just throwing programs at me at no cost, I would be like, well, great, I'm going to ask them all to do lots of services for the city at, you know, a higher cost than I would otherwise, because I used to have to subsidize everything and now everything's being thrown at me. So I think prior to COVID, a lot of cities were asking for very, very high uh, fees in terms of permit fees, very, very stringent regulations, um, which Remix was uh, observing and implementing in some places in our mobility platform. And also, what that meant was that the private mobility operators were just constantly competing with each other to kind of outbid in different cities with models that may or may not be sustainable. And so recently, we've seen a ton of consolidation. And what that means is that there's fewer players for cities to choose from and cities who prior may have, you know, 20 plus mobility companies trying to throw services their way are now looking for somebody to implement their bike share, you know, and it's kind of like the tables have reversed in a way where if this were an ideal world, it makes it all the more clear that that cities need private mobility companies to provide services that they wouldn't be able to otherwise, like a city's not going to go and manufacture their own scooters. That's, that's insane. Um, and at the same time, the mobility companies realize that cities cannot be overlooked and they need their partnership in order to operate and be successful. What do you make of the fact that some of the larger private mobility companies appear to be wanting to either blur the lines between public transit and private mobility by just providing, you know, access to all of them on a single platform, like you see this through Google Maps and things like that, or in the case of for example Uber perhaps getting into the public transit business, they somewhat famously in the space, won a uh, contract from Marin in Northern California recently to provide on-demand transit service. So Uber will become a provider of uh, at least software to enable public transit. They also just made an acquisition of a company called RouteMatch um, a couple of weeks ago. So what do we think about the the private mobility providers wanting to somehow or another be in the public transit game? So I think it's a little bit funny and ironic because 
as most people know, public transit has never been a money generator, specifically in the U.S. <laughs> Maybe in, you know, Japan or Hong Kong or Taiwan or other parts of Asia that have figured it out with real estate partnerships. Um, honestly, public transit is not super profitable. Um, I would say the play that Uber is making towards uh, buying route match and focusing on paratransit, I think if they wanted to somehow positively impact transit in the long term. I think that's a very smart play because uh, the paratransit space is one that is, you know, really ripe for innovation and also the uh, market forces that Uber, you know, creates, I think will bring innovation to those spaces where typically, you know, for a paratransit rider, you'd have to call 24 hours in advance to reserve your trip to the doctor um, and then, you know, reserve again 24 hours later to come back. You know, it's 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 a, an outdated system that um, could possibly use a lot of innovative technology. Um, what I think is interesting is if Uber and other TNCs start to see public transit as um, a place where they can not only be the technology layer, but also kind of imbue it with the entire services model, um, more akin to like a first transit or a transdev or a Keolis, kind of the more traditional operators um, that are really prevalent in Europe. Um, they're the ones who operate on behalf of cities and municipalities in many places around um, the international communities. Uh, and they have in many places been more successful uh, sometimes than the cities themselves. So that's a good segue into uh, a short geographic comparison here, which is we've been, I think, focusing mostly on on the U.S., but as you said before, Remix has customers in 22 countries and certainly in a lot of Europe in particular. Um, what's the difference that we're seeing right now? I mean, obviously, there have been differences well before COVID in terms of attention to budgets for and focus on public transit um, in European cities versus North American cities. But what are we seeing now in real time? How are things diverging between what's happening here and what's happening in Europe? I would say the biggest divergence comes from the speed of recovery that we're seeing outside in the U.S. Ridership is going back up to maybe near normal levels in a lot of places in Europe, um, in the U.K., in um, Luxembourg, in Ireland. Uh, ridership is increasing because people are on the way to recovery, you know. Here in the U.S., we can't figure out how to put a mask on. And so as a result, our... Uh, <laughs> our levels of infection are just through the roof. And so as a result, and also stigmas traditionally, um, people are just scared to ride public transit here. Whereas in the US, you see the Taipei Metro, everybody's just wearing a mask and riding transit together because the infection rates are so low and um, there's no research that shows that you're more likely to contract COVID when you're on a bus versus you know somewhere else. So I would say we're falling behind and uh, other cities like Paris and Milan and Rome, they're investing, you know, millions and billions of dollars into their active transportation infrastructure, like absolutely accelerating the number of protected bike lanes and the capacity of people to be riding lightweight electric vehicles in those lanes as opposed to single occupancy cars. Um, and I think what happens now is the U.S. is just going to be further and further behind. Coming up, we're going to talk about what this means when COVID is over. 
First, the interchange is brought to you by Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. Storage accelerates the deployment of renewables. It helps the world reach critical emissions reduction targets and delivers cost-effective grid services. Are you ready for the era of energy storage? Fluence is. With over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge, Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services. Their fully integrated sixth-generation technology stack combines modular factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence with the latest safety advancements embedded in every level of product design and delivery. Scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to your specific use case and application. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. All right, so let's fast forward a year, two years, who knows how long, but let's uh, fast forward to uh, the time when we have fully recovered. There's a vaccine for COVID. It has gotten out to everybody. And, you know, we resume some degree of normalcy in American life. Do we have any sense at this point of which of the changes that we've seen underway, either from a transit or a streets perspective, will stick, might stick, or whether we will just snap right back to everything being the same that it was, you know, six months ago? So I have a very optimistic answer and a really depressing answer. (laughs) I would say in my optimistic answer, there is a huge amount of opportunity around taking those experiments that cities and agencies have been running and then turning them into permanent fixtures. For example, transit priority lanes, uh, typically very hard one, um, are now actual pieces of conversation that are moving forward in DC, in San Francisco, in uh, Vancouver. I would say in San Francisco, that's actually been really exciting to see because I live uh, two blocks away from the Mission Red Lanes um, where the 14R runs. And that was a very, very difficult and controversial project. Um, But with the 14 bus actually over capacity right now because there's so many essential workers that use that line, uh, the city has been actually adding more and more buses to that route in order for distancing to happen and in order for those buses to move uh, reliably through the city streets um, they need to expand their network of red lanes so I was just talking to Jeff Tomlin the head of SFMTA last week and he proposed a temporary emergency transit lane ordinance which actually passed um, at the MTA board last week and uh, that's going to go into effect into effect soon. And if it's successful, it will be permanent. So what's the depressing one? (laughs) So the depressing one is if in light of the political environment we are in today, um, anything resembling social services like public transit or bike share are seen as expendable and unsafe and unhealthy. And so all the resources are devoted to making sure that people can buy more cars to be safe in their own car environment, adding more lanes to highways so people can be in their cars more efficiently and faster and quote unquote, not stuck in traffic, but you will be stuck in more traffic because of induced demand. And I think that is a very, very possible future in the U.S. where we traditionally have never invested enough in infrastructure for the many as opposed to the single individual. What are your thoughts on the impact of all these white collar workers working from home? Like how much will that impact um 
transit, not just transit ridership, but the lack of cars on the road, right? I mean, you can imagine more people are going to use cars in general to get around, but if fewer people are driving cars into the city, what is the long-term impact and what are you seeing today? So today, um, traffic levels are not yet near where they were pre-COVID, but they are on a trajectory upward. And I think that will continue because transit, people are still scared to ride it. Um, People are definitely buying cars. Um, A lot of my friends who were kind of in the same boat as me, never wanted to own a car, are all of a sudden considering car ownership, which, you know, kind of blows my mind, but I kind of understand. Um, And what that means is I think just because you look outside your window and there's not a traffic jam there today doesn't mean that as things start moving, people start uh, recreating more, um, there's more trips to see friends because that's okay now. Um, I think the the level of traffic will continue to increase. And if we're not careful and we don't prioritize certain modes above others, we're just going to be in a worse position than we were six months ago. So the main focus of our show is obviously sustainability. We're often talking about how this feeds into how we clean up the transportation system, the energy system. So I wonder, does this new set of choices make it more or less difficult to implement sustainability practices in transportation planning? Are transit agencies just dealing with the crisis and unable to take that bigger picture view, or does it give them an opportunity to start to implement these sustainability practices that are good for human health and the environment? So taking a step back, transportation is the single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. In the U.S., I think it's around 30%. In San Francisco, it's around 46%. And, uh, The city of San Francisco, the Department of the Environment, uh, where I'm a commissioner, they actually have a framework called 080100 Roots, which means um, the entire kind of climate change focus that the city has been on the path to is rooted in zero waste, 80% sustainable trips, 100% renewable energy, and the root signifies their commitment to biodiversity. Of those four tenants, The director, Debbie Raphael, always says that the 80% sustainable trips is the most frustrating, stickiest one of all. And the reason why is because so much of it is rooted in personal consumer behavior and what we individually prioritize and think is good for ourselves, as opposed to um, some of the other pieces we might be more easily incentivized by kind of system-wide changes, like, you know, our recycling program, for example. So... I would say we're actually at a really, really difficult time for transportation and planning as an industry because everything we've ever thought was correct around moving the most number of people in the least amount of space has just been completely upended by COVID. And what that means is that we have to try that much harder to move that many more people in still the same amount of little space, but now with the added difficulty of human perception around health and safety. So I would say the job of transportation professionals and practitioners and decision makers are, you know, just a hundred times harder than they were before. Um, The uphill battle is not going to be easy, but I think there's enough momentum around climate change and social justice being 
kind of the key outcomes of a really good transportation network and plan that the more that becomes part of the conversation, that it's not just about me getting from point A to point B, but it's about climate change and access to opportunity for the majority of people. I think that's how we change the nature of our trajectory in the future. Tiffany Chu is the CEO and co-founder of Remix. Tiffany, thanks so much for joining us. Shale, are you going to be lobbying Berkeley to open up a lane for your like those solo wheels that you put on your feet, uh, your battery-powered solo wheel, or some other fancy contraption that only the folks in Silicon Valley use? If there's if there's one thing I don't have the stomach for, it's lobbying Berkeley for anything. <laughs> <laughs> if you were on Berkeley next door, you would understand. That's going to wrap up the show. Shale Khan is my co-host. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixed the show. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, uh, and you can suggest show topics there. Hit us up with any feedback on this show or potential other episodes. You can also send us a direct message as well. That's definitely helpful for us to sort through story ideas from you. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And if you appreciate us, give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey.